welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, this is Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, I have a special guest. I have Angie Reno with me. Hey, buddy. On your podcast, Siblinghood of Recovery. Was that last year, I think, or a year before? Buddy, I think it was, it, and we were talking about this just now a couple of minutes ago. It it was a couple of years ago, and it's flying by. Yes. Time is just wickedly fast. Tell us what your podcast is about. Why are you doing a podcast? I think it comes down to, and I imagine the rooms. I imagine walking into the rooms with the parents. It's walking in those rooms and having a sense of, which is ironic, the joy of knowing somebody else knows what's going on in your life. Admits the chaos, knowing that you're not alone, knowing that, and that's such an overstated sentence, but it's true. It's a hundred percent true. And some of us are on the outside put together. We're efficient. We're organized at work. We're meeting all of our quote unquote metrics. And then you walk into those rooms and you understand that something's got to change. And you're coming from the Al-Anon perspective. I want to say that rather than from the, as an addict yourself, it was your son that you were going to the rooms for, correct? Or that you got involved in this? Is that how it happened? Yes. And I've done so much work that I know now that Al-Anon is like at the tip of the iceberg. When I interviewed you about doubt, right? And we need to talk about it for my listeners too, because I want to, I want you to explain to my, because I'm going to put this on my site and my podcast, if it's okay with you. Yes, ma'am. But we went to a place, because I was struggling at that time with the higher power, because I had been raised in a fantastic Catholic step family, but it was very, you must behave. I don't know if I want this higher power thing. I was struggling with it. But when you and I started conversing, it shifted my whole perspective. Your book is excellent too. It was a real deal. And really what we're talking about when we're talking about the Tao, and I'll say this for your listeners too, it's just another way of looking at this higher power that we don't understand or God or whatever name you want to put on this. It's like looking at the statue of spirituality from just another view, another vantage point. And studying the Tao and the Tao Te Ching just simplifies the whole idea of a higher power because all of the examples are mostly from nature or very simple interactions with others, like the open boat, for example. Mm. Uh, a boat bumps into your boat, and it's the empty boat. It bumps into your boat. It's empty. Do you get mad? No, you don't. You just put the boat where it goes. It was just an empty boat. But yet, if a boat bumps into you that has someone in it, you're going to get irate about it because they shouldn't have bumped into your boat, all those things. Treat. Every boat is an empty boat. Wow. Those things that just blow me away that were yeah. 2,500 years ago. <laughs> that was an ancient saying 
2,500 years ago. So we don't know how far back all of these ideas go. And it just brings us to a level of acceptance, really. If we were born in China, we would have the, we know of the Tao Te Ching just like we know of the Bible here in the West. Mm, yeah. It's the second most published book in the world behind the Bible. Just simplicity. You talk a lot about breaking the, the generational, intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Can you go into a little bit of that with us? Yeah. And you and I spoke about it before we started recording and on my podcast, I continuously emphasize therapy, you know, and I'm not a therapist, not a licensed therapist, never ever will I be one. I, and knowing that I had to speak with you today, I had to get an emergency session (laughs) with my therapist. I see her about, I probably should see her more. I'd see her once a month. And she knows me well enough that, holy Pete, she's, Angie's never asked for this before. And I said, and I'll say her first name. I said, Julie, I got to get my head straight. Because how can I talk about being healthy if I can't process this? Yeah. And we did. She walked me through an incredibly challenging situation where a couple of years ago, uh, and definitely a half decade ago, I would have lost it. I would have not, I would have been completely off the rails, not knowing how to self-regulate, incredibly upset. And so that is breaking the intergenerational trauma of simply knowing and being aware of how is my inability to self-regulate going to impact my child because that is my goal i my kid is is, and was last night and is and will continue to be involved in the challenging situation i had at hand and I, i had to get with julie and say let me break this down now one of the things that she brought to me was an insight to if you continue to ask why, you will go down a rabbit hole. Instead, ask, how am I going to handle it? So this is, take this to the boat, right? Why did that boat hit my boat? We don't know. Versus, how am I going to handle it? I just had an interview with Jackie Warbroff. She's on my podcast. She's a NARM, Neural Affective Relational Model Therapist. And what she taught me do taught me to do is to feel my feelings. That's part of tall stuff, man, right? Mm-hmm. And when I say why is this happening versus how am I going to handle it, it's a different feeling in my body, and and that's a very teeny tiny example of what intergenerational trauma, the breaking of, can be, right? Look, we all have these stereotypes. If you're raised in an Italian family, you're going to yell and scream and blah, blah, blah. Look, I was raised by an Italian stepdad. The family was very quiet. (laughs) But the stereotypical of that's how our family communicates sometimes to me can lead to 
a lack of evolution. Let's be aware of how we're communicating. Let's be at least aware of, is this impacting my kid's ability to learn how to handle a situation? There's a lot of layers there. I know. I I know. (laughs) We were talking before about the, we'll talk about this a little because I can't talk about it much because I'm already tearing up. The trauma, the divorce trauma Mm. in our children. I have two children. I remember the day that I told them I was leaving. I stayed very involved, very active, but my son always held a resentment against me for that, saying that was the worst day of his life. Yeah. And he more or less blamed his addiction on me and leaving home, basically. Best mm. I recall. And he's passed now. We've, I talked about it before two years ago this summer, or this month actually. And I still think about that day. Something comes on TV, people talking about divorce or I'm working running title on a house and I see divorce all the time in there where I have to read the court orders and all yeah. this. And I'll read one and I'll say, oh no, they're getting divorced. And then I'll, I can follow the path of the life all the way through and, oh, they've got this child or this. And uh, I have to, at some point, I have to let that go that I did the best I could do in the moment. But I talked to my daughter about it and she doesn't even remember it. Yes. So she was like, she was big enough to remember. She was eight I think when, when eight or nine when this happened she should have some memory of it she may be something she's repressed I don't know but she says she doesn't even remember us being married so I don't know if that'll come out at a later time she's in her mid-20s and there's no addiction issues with her there's she's doing great fantastic yeah. so I don't know about that but I know it definitely marked my son so I want to pull the thread on this this is probably where it's dangerous getting to inter- interviewers and podcasters. <laughs> I just got it. I will delete anything that I, I will take out. Anything. Yeah, I hope you don't delete the good no. stuff, though. Keep the gems in. Yeah. I want to pull the thread on l- the importance of those two different little minds mm-hmm. and those two different little souls and hearts. And I, I have the same experience. I have two gorgeous boys I gave birth to one stepson. He will always be my stepson. No matter where he is in the world, I will always be incredibly grateful for being in his life. Even if he forgets me one day, I'm good. But the situation that you describe with your daughter not remembering that day and your boy remembering that day, your son remembering that day, it, it goes to the individuality of their psychological makeup, whatever neurons are firing and not firing. And I think that's where the awareness comes in as parents that we have to be incredibly aware that even though we might say, Hey, we're going to sit down and have a family meeting and talk about it. One kid might be like, and the other kid might be, have so much anxiety about what's going to be talked about. And, we're not going to be able to control that. We're just not. Yeah. It's hard. It's like being, it, it's like training. If you want to train for an event, 
that is 20 years and from now, that's what you're doing as a parent, breaking intergenerational trauma. And the funny part is that when you get to that 20th year, you're going to have to keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how, how did you had a, a son that had issues? Yes. How did you, how did that progress for you? When you found out, no, you're not in recovery at this time of any kind, correct? When No, I would take that back. ACA. Okay. Oh, when did you start ACA? I started it after I talked to you. Really? Yes. As a matter of fact, I should look at the date that the sibling hood of recovery has posted, because that's about when I started in January of 21. Wow. How yeah, I had for you. Thank you. Kevin Peterson. I also interviewed him. He's on my podcast. Something wasn't right. And I met him for coffee and he handed me the laundry list. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, all right. I hit 99.999% of these. Huh? <laughs> so I'm, we have meetings every Sunday. I have my parents support group, my main one. Sunday nights and Wednesdays. So sometimes I'll be honest with you, two meetings in a day can be emotionally taxing. So sometimes I get one week on, one week off, but the, I'm doing the laundry and traits workbook, which is intense because every time I back off, buddy, I feel it coming back. I feel it's almost like muscle memory. Yeah. There's always more to surrender. Yeah. Yeah. But, but my son, I think that goes back to how he processed the home environment, which was incredibly toxic. And I only speak on my side as a contributor. I I always will. The other person isn't here to provide their viewpoint. So I know I, directly contributed to an incredibly toxic situation. And the only way I knew, I just had to reset. I tried everything in my mind, six therapists, the Gorman workshop. And I had this one word in my work training, curiosity. And it, it I realized that I couldn't be curious in my own home. And so I had to blow it up for lack of a better description, I just completely reset. And I knew my boy at that time had been addicted. I subconsciously knew it was bad, but I wouldn't admit it. I was in total denial. And I wanted to give him the support that other people could provide him that I was not capable of. And so that was my goal. And I tell you, I kept my eye on the ball as soon as I got that divorce going, I started working out, not working on myself. I didn't do that yet, but I contacted local therapists, local resources, and I started listening to what they said I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And then I got them in twelve thirty one twenty, which is every New Year's Eve, I, I look at that date as a beginning and an, an end and a, and then tomorrow is 
the start of of um who knows what's going to happen healing for sure yeah and your podcast goes into and i'm grateful for you sharing your heart with with what mm-hmm. you share in the podcast because anyone that's dealing with a child that has had issues that they have gone through the process with or are going through the process with this your podcast has so many resources for them ACA as the adult children of alcoholics is what the ACA stands for that is an incredible program I know many in in recovery that turn to ACA as well yeah it's an incredible program. So you have do you have a sponsor in ACA? Is that how they do I, it? I don't have a traveler yet. I will talk okay. to them. Yeah, they call them travelers and I want a traveler, but I know and here's the funny thing about ACA and dysfunctional families. It, it, and we can talk about this if you want, but you talked about it in your interview. You were talking about how this guy had a sponsor and that sponsor wasn't healthy. And that, and that's the irony of, I call that the, um, recovery sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Cause we know, we know where, you know, the bodies are buried, so to speak. We know, we know the mind, minefield is a better, yeah. <laughs> it's a less dark way of looking at it. But I am very timid about developing a relationship where I feel like I have to open up so much. I like to keep those walls around me. I'm being totally honest. Yeah, we all do, Angie. We all mm-hmm. want to do that. In finding a traveler or sponsor, if you're in AA jargon, is just another, for me, is another layer of powerlessness. Because yeah, it's intimate, though, buddy. It's oh, so yeah. intimate. Oh. And if we get in those situations, I believe the right person, I've had three sponsors and every time just the right person showed up for me. But for some people, the right person does not show up first. Mm. And you have to be cautious of that. And if you were looking at finding a sponsor and you think someone has shown up in your life that could be that person, I would start with small bites of truth rather than everything and just see how they respond and just think of them as a temporary first Mm. and just see if it works continue and if it doesn't work then you know and you move on to someone else but I wouldn't I would start with some little things to be honest about and see how and just trust your gut trust your gut you talk about why as being the wrong question. Uh, it reminded me of a Bible verse, actually. Oh, yeah. They were asking Let's Jesus. Get into that. Uh-huh. They were asking Jesus why the man was born blind. Mm. And he told them, he said, you're asking the wrong question. He said, you should be asking, how could the father be glorified in this? So in other words, what can I, how can I find gratitude in this? Is there any aspects of it? Maybe not the issue, but in my son's death, I wasn't grateful for him dying, but I'm grateful for a lot of the lessons I learned from 
the experience. I, I learned a lot about acceptance that I would not have known otherwise. Being able to accept an unacceptable situation prepared me for other unacceptable situations. We're all going to have unacceptable situations in our life. Yes. And we've got to know how to deal with those things because the rain falls on all of us. Yeah. We're doing the right things. doesn't mean everything's unicorns and rainbows. No. There's two things in there. The why versus the how. And I have a beautiful step family. My stepsisters are my dad married a Venezuelan woman. And I can't say enough about how much I love them. I literally can't. And we recently had a family challenge and I, the way that my sisters are handling this is the mantra of that, of Jesus little, literally saying, it's not about why it's like, where's the glory in this? Where's the father's glory? I'm not overly religious. I'm not, you know, purporting or or recommending somebody to go to the Bible for recovery. That's not where I'm coming from. What I'm coming, where I'm coming from in this one specific area is you are, you're insightful, right? In that it's easy for humans in this human condition to sit there. Why, why, right? But in the Taoism has this too, right? Don't worry about the why. Worry about where you're going, where you're going to take, take, this moment in this learning experience. Don't even worry, actually. That's even the wrong word. And the second thing is, because I do want to speak to the parent out there who is struggling, who's feeling so lost and so empty and defeated, right? It's going to be hard. It's going to be the hardest thing a parent ever does to watch a child go through addiction and just know that somewhere inside there is your loved one somewhere. I just saw the addict for a while and I didn't have all the tools at the time to pull away from that. I didn't have all the tools to understand that this is not black and white. My travels have taken me to be introduced to moms of all paths of recovery. Susan Ousterman is, she lost her beautiful boy, Tyler. And this is all out there. I'm not saying anything that is private, but she consistently works on legislation. She consistently works on helping those who are addicted to to take baby steps to get out of it. And her story is fantastic. And then she introduced me to Cordelia Krause. So I started learning about the craft method. And I want as communities, I always just say craft and I'll, I'll give you a link you can put in your show notes. But this is also where the family relies on community, right? And that's where the meetings come from. Because you can talk to somebody, a neighbor that you've been a neighbor with for 20 years, but if, if they can't understand it, there's you're going to feel disconnected from that person. And it's so vital as you walk this journey to get in a room, to get in a community, even if it's a Zoom, of people that understand what's going on in your heart. Because this isn't a child that has cancer 
You're not going to have, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, whatever we can do. When you, when your child is addicted to a substance, it's frightening to the other parents that don't have that challenge. There's no other way to say it because it's almost like they feel like it's leprosy. They don't want it to spread. And so that's where the isolation comes even more. I don't know what happened, buddy, but I know as soon as I said, look, I'm out of this situation called a marriage. I kept my eye on the ball. I walked wherever I had to walk. I saw whoever I had to see. I just knew that it was almost like I, I started a marathon, a really slow, long marathon. I knew that there was my end, my cross across the finish line was getting him into a treatment center. What I quickly realized is that I had to separate. I had to stop the enmeshment. I had to stop the codependency. The codependency being if he's healthy and I'm healthy. And that's where the, that's where my journey of recovery. My journey of recovery literally began the moment I gave him over. And I had a team that that looked me straight in the eyes and said, "Mom, He's good. We'll be in touch. And I felt the energy was like, she might have had looked at me and said, okay, it's time to get to work. That was the energy that I felt. And I was okay with it because I'm a hard worker, buddy. <laughs> I can get it done. That's part of our problem, isn't it? Yeah. That we want to work harder and do better. There was a story recently that really spoke to me. It was called The Shadow. There was a gentleman that wanted to remove his shadow and his footsteps. So he said, I know what I'll do. I'll outrun them. So he ran a little while and he never could outrun his shadow or his footsteps. So he stopped. He said, what else can I do? I know what I'll do. I'll run harder. <laughs> <laughs> so he ran okay. harder and ran and ran and ran till he fell over dead. He fell over dead. Yeah. I don't want to fall over dead. That's for sure. But yeah, it's so funny because that's what I think that's what Taoism does as well. You can have this idea or this, I have this intent. And then Taoism says, oh yeah, just know that this is a little bit to the side or a little bit to the left. <laughs> Effort you're putting out really helping. Yeah. For me, it, it I did need to separate the selves a hundred percent. And you know this, especially in the work that you do. You know that the Al Anon and the the twelve steps that support AA, they really do focus on separating the self and the self identity, getting agency. Yes. Uh, now, the, back to the finish the story. This is a Dallas story, too. It came from, I believe, the Chawansa, which is a book Thomas Merton went and uh, did. But all he had to do was step in the shade and he would have removed his shadow. Mm. And secondly, he just had to be still and he wouldn't make any more footsteps. Steps. Yeah. So all he had to do was step into the shade and be still. Yeah. All he had to do, which is work. That is effort too. It's effort for me to stay in the shadow. It's effort for me to be still. To be still. Yes. 
Yeah. In in Dallas, they talk about Wu Wei, which is effortless effort is what they call it, but it's also can be turned can be interpreted as empty effort. Yeah. So it's effort that's empty of self, like you were talking about, the separation there that we have to make. Yeah. I it's harder for me now to stay in situations that are not healthy. Mm-hmm. However, the, we are human. And so I think all of us are a little bit unhealthy. Definitely. So I think it becomes, there's that, and there's a, that it's good to constantly be aware of judgment. Is that creeping in? And this goes to any parent that's, in this situation right now, we constantly feel judged and then comes the shame, right? So I think to that story is maybe you're, he's running away from something or he's running whatever to see his steps. But in this situation with recovery as a parent, it's easier to run away from the situation than it is to slow down and we got to meditate. But I, I think that's also part of the problem with the, the energy that's in the home for kids is that we have them on 360. We have them or life 360, whatever we have. We know everything that they're doing. We're seeing the grades. We're seeing talking to the teachers. I stopped looking at my youngest grades and I, and maybe this might cause palpitations for some moms out there, <laughs> but I did. I started looking at my son's grade like once a quarter or when he'd say, Hey mom, I'd check in with him because what I realized I had done to my kids is that the way the algorithms were was the, they calculated the averages and the averages were not always complete until the teacher put it in. And I started thinking about that, like the obsessive nature of this electronic world where the parents are like on the kids constantly and what they're judging them on is just a percentage of who they are. Yes. So go ahead. I was just thinking the other day about how when I was a kid in the Mm seventies, I would tell my parents I was going to do something and I might be gone for days hiking or going somewhere and they wouldn't hear a word from me. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have any. And now I step out of the house without my phone and I think, oh my God, can I go down the road without my phone? (laughs) (laughs) And it's another level of that even that you're talking about that we have to let go with our kids now. Yes. We are smothering them, smothering them. And I will say this. To anybody that listens, I were sitting them in schools and classrooms with a setup that is 200 years old, 16 desks, if we're lucky, 30 desks facing the front. This is what you need to learn. Now, listen, some kids do great at that. Some kids excel. We had a fantastic parent group the other night where we realized that I think 80% of the moms said they their son had ADHD 
And then I was like, what? maybe they're just wired differently. These are the kids that go into trade school, learn to weld. You can pull in some fantastic money welding at the port terminal here in Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Fantastic money. Use your hands. Your mind's different. Your neuro, you know, transmitters are different. And we've got to understand that not all kid is going to excel in this environment of constant tracking, constant measurement. And maybe that's why they turn to self-medication. Yeah, it's really about learning how to love our kids through those things. Um, I had those experiences with my son that you're talking about, that every parent that has a, a child that deals with addiction, I had to lay down some rules. I had to stand by those, kick him out of the house when he was a senior in high school. Mm. Things of that nature that I had to, before, and we had grown back together. He had a lot of consequences dealing with alcohol, and I never would put up bail. I would never do those things. I felt that he needed to answer for those things. So mm-hmm. I tried to separate myself like you were talking about. And I, I would always stay in contact with my sponsor. I would always see if this was coming from a place of love or a place of fear. Mm, yes. When he didn't go to high school, I mean, he didn't go to college. He was a star student, had the highest wow. ATs in the school. When he went from eighth to ninth grade, he had made the only perfect score ever on the placement test that they take to go from eighth to ninth grade. Wow. Every question correct. And he was that brilliant. And when he didn't go to college, I got angry with him and I couldn't get over the anger. Mm. I thought I went to my sponsor and said, I'm angry with my son and I don't know. I think he, I think it's because he's losing this opportunity, blah, 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 all those things. And when we got to talking about it and digging it down, it was really because he was embarrassing me. It was back to my fear. Yes. It takes so much to say that out loud. And once I realized it and shined the light on it, I didn't even have to work with that fear. It just went away and I was not angry with him anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's from having a recovery program that works. If you don't have that, you're just on the outskirts and not invested in recovery yourself. Yes. How has that changed you, Angie? I know you've done a lot of work on yourself. How? <laughs> yeah. I, so my eldest is we, is, gosh, there's so many things. I'm going to go back to my dad. He, oh God, he's so smart. <laughs> this guy scored. You talking about SATs? Yeah. Brilliant man. And he would say this himself. He was a functioning alcoholic, and he and we had lots of conversations about drinking because it was pervasive. Just he, kind human, not an angry person, but he, he knew he had a. Challenge knowing now going through the program, I know he tried because he would talk about a higher power, the way he talked about worry straight out of the book, straight out of the book. But anyway, he, <clears throat> he started two five two nines 
And that's what I used for the treatment center for my eldest, the 529. You know, that, that? that's a college education fund that oh. you can put into. And, and granted, you get taxed if you don't use it, and that's okay. But Bob Reno, had, he just, he, I think there, I heard somewhere that really investing in your family is not just about what's happening today. It's like what's going to happen when you're not there. And that ties into the embarrassment that you described. Right. What's going on now instead of saying, okay. And I, and the reason I'm telling this is that my eldest finally said to me, mama, I'm not going to go to college. And do you know what I said to him, buddy? Cause that was just a couple of weeks ago. I said, I am so proud of you for telling the truth. I said, it changes the vibe in the room. It changes the feeling of the conversation, everything. And that's, that's what I told him. I could not have said those words three or four years ago. Couldn't have said them, but I've learned so much. And you know what? He's doing what he wants to do. He's healthy. He's self-supporting. He is passionate about what he's doing every day. Excellent relationship with his baby brother, although they call each other names that none of us could put on our podcasts, but which I don't understand. That's a whole other male thing. I don't, whatever, but, it, and that's something I don't control as much anymore now too. But yeah, your story is something that a parent might need to hear right now. My story is something a parent might need to hear right now. Yeah. One more thing with how I handled my son. My sponsor taught me to look for something to be grateful for that he is doing. Yeah. Focus on the things that he is doing well rather than the things that he, I think he's doing wrong. Yes. So I'll, if there's something come up, I would thank him for this or that and ignore the parts that I was not, you know, I could be proud of him for other things. And what really brought this to light was his daughter, his daughter, his sister, two years younger, was in college at the time and she got her master's. She was the one that did everything. I told her, I said, if it wasn't for you, I would have thought I was a horrible father. <laughs> Because she is just, and she's living out, just doing her thing and doing well. Now, always done well, actually. And so uh, she was the kid when she was little that my son would be like sitting at the table. And he wouldn't be up at the table. I'd say, move, you got to sit up at the table. And she'd say, daddy, look at me. I'm sitting correctly. Oh, uh, I know those dynamics. <laughs> But he got, he really had a resentment about not going to college as she was going through. I just stayed out of that once I got rid of that. For me, I just encouraged him with the things that he was doing. Yeah. Your sponsor's feedback, I don't like using advice. You know, I know that's almost like a bad word, is equivalent to craft, the craft approach. And it's also equivalent to the mother's, um, Mothers for all passive recovery, right? So it's, it's interesting because there's that thread of gratefulness for the human that's standing in front of you. And 
the interesting part about going back to the measurement, the societal measurement that we are in, the frenzy of constant tracking of, of whether it's social media posts, the feelings that you get when you listen to both of those situations are completely different. And it is reflective in our children's mental health statistics right now. And the amount of deaths, of course, fentanyl doesn't help, but the amount of deaths related to self-medication. I was walking the dog. You know, it, it, I've talked to you a couple of times when I've been walking my boxer, but, and I saw two, I saw, oh gosh, one of, I think one of the kids must have been about 14, 15. The other one was 10 and they looked like brothers and buddy, they were freaking high as a kite. And I know now that my youngest would partake to be closer to his brother. So it was almost as if God was showing me, my higher power was showing me a moment in time. And my heart, you know what I wanted to do? I I wanted to hold them. Mm -hmm. I wanted to just give them the biggest hug. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to run to their parents and tell on them. I didn't want to say, what are you doing? I wanted to hold them. I wanted to say, you are loved. That's all I wanted to do. And that's the difference too in recovery, right? The layers of judgment, the layers of measurement, the layers of expectations start falling away. And uh, I pray for them. I don't know them. I don't know if I'll ever see them again. But I pray and I hope that they'll be okay. Because whatever it is that they're trying to self-medicate to get away from, God bless them. God bless them. There's a quote from the 12th verse of the Tao that says, the master observes the world, but trusts his inner vision. He allows things to come and go. His heart is open as the sky. Mm, I like that. An open heart, like you're talking about. I, if we can approach those situations from a perspective of, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to do. How do, what do I do? Just open my heart. Send them love and ask, how can I be helpful? Mm-hmm. If I do those three things, more than likely, and if I just wait, more than likely the right, right situation, the right plans, the right decisions mm-hmm. come my way. That's so much harder than getting in there and trying to fix it. I want to fix it. Oh, yeah. The fixers are dangerous. And I, I am one. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm... <laughs> Oh, hands up. It's me. A few minutes left, Angie. I yeah. wonder if you could speak to, thank you for opening your heart to the podcast, because there's mm. some things that have been said today that I'm sure some folks can use. I hope so. Anything you want to add? And then if you could speak to the person, the newcomer, maybe the newcomer parent that may be listening to this podcast. Uh, that may be in recovery or may not, but they're mm. dealing with a teenager, dealing with someone in their life that they just don't know what to do about their addiction. What role do they play? How how can they be of maximum benefit, really? 
Yeah. Questions for them? I think first feel your feelings. These are phrases that have been said and will be said over and over again, right? Understand, start to understand, journal about what you're feeling, right? That's not going to solve anything, but what you're going to start doing is you're going to start on the road to self-discovery, okay? And then if you can find a therapist, know that it's okay to... You're not marrying a therapist. So if you have to date a little bit, that's fine. I spoke to a friend of mine and she had two really bad experiences. So I gave her my therapist number and she's, I I think I can get healthy again. So just know that you've got to find a therapist where you feel that you're on the right track because you're going to need, you're going to need to talk through and you're going to need to start healing with a professional. The next thing is actually I'll do all these kind of get these started, I would say within a week, no more than a month, right? All these three things is find a good families anonymous meeting or a good Al-Anon meeting, Naranon, CODA, go to all those websites and look at starting to listen and share your story. That's going to start helping you put the pieces back together. Notice that I've talked about you. Notice that I talked about you, the parent, and not the loved one who's addicted, because that is going to be a journey that's not going to be solved in a week, a month, maybe not even a year. I hate to say this, but you've just entered a very long process that might be, hopefully, a lifetime. That's what we want. We want a lifetime of recovery. We want to be able to recover with our loved one for the rest of our lives. If we take that approach as parents, it becomes different. It's not like I'm going to fix this and move on. I'm going to build a house and it's done. I'm going to buy a car and I got it for four years or whatever. If we're blessed, we have it for 10, 15. But know that if you're a parent of a full-on addicted child, You've got at least a decade ahead of you to get this thing to the point where love, love is the lead thought, the lead feeling, frustration, all that pain, anxiety. It's going to be there, but just know that love's got to be front and center. I don't know if that's the right formula, but it's the best I can give right now. It's your formula. <laughs> yeah. So that's all we have is what, what works for us. Can I leave? Can we leave it with the empty boat? Sure. Yeah. I love that. I love that visual. So if some, something or something frustrates us, just that's a great visual. Thank you for that. I loved it. You know, that reminds me we can't take things personally. Thanks for being with us today, Angie. I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.